I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Olga Garay. Olga Garay is the executive director of the City of Los Angeles Department of Cultural Affairs. Prior to that, she was an independent producer and performing arts consultant who worked with organizations such as the Lincoln Center Festival and the National Performance Network. As a founding program director for the arts for the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation between 1998 and 2005, she was responsible for the planning, design, management, and evaluation of the arts program. In 2006, she received a Bessie, the New York Dance and Performance Award, and named the Cuban Artists Fund Distinguished Honoree. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Olga. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. It's uh, a, a pleasure to be at Zocalo. I am a great admirer of this organization. I think that their objectives and goals and ideals to bring free public discourse to the people of Los Angeles is something that, that really uh, needs to be lauded. So thank you, Gregory, and thank you, fine staff. So we're going to get right into this. We have three marvelous speakers. Tonight's topic, as you know, is what do Americans think of Cuba? When I talked to Gregory about it, what I wanted to find out how he wanted me to really focus the discussion tonight, he said, well, you know, Americans think of Cuba as this, you know, sexy playground and, um, you know, where people are sensuous and, and people go out and they're all musical and everybody dances all day and um, everybody has great uh, color sense. <laughs> I know I do. Um, <laughs> so we want to play a little bit with it. We want this to be an interesting and fun conversation, but we also want to get into some of the other <coughs> images of the island. I, I think that um, ever since the United States really, for the last 200 years, has had this sort of love-hate relationship with the island, and we want to really use tonight to discover both sides of that continuum. And as always with Zocalo, we, we will leave about 15 or 20 minutes to hear from the audience. So let's just get right into it. As, as you know, our panel is a very distinguished one. And I'm going to start with Virginia Bayen, whose photography is part of the exhibition that is up right now, Cuba, a Revolutionary Project from Walker Evans to Now. As you know, the um, exhibition has three components, Walker Evans photography, obviously, the photography of the revolutionary sort of early years from nine Cuban photographers, and then Virginia's work uh, makes up the last um, section. Virginia is based at Dartmouth College, uh, Leslie Center for the Humanities, and her work has been shown at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Corcoran, the Smithsonian, MoMA, and MFA Boston. So um, I want when, when she and I talked this morning to try to prepare for today's <coughs> lecture, I said, how are you going to approach the topic? And she said, well, you know, I'm going to approach it as what I am, I'm an artist. And so what I'd like to start with as a question is what drew her to Cuba? I mean, she could have gone anywhere in the world to do her work. She's been there now nine trips mm -hmm. and she's gonna share some of her work with us. And I do encourage you, if you haven't seen the exhibition yet, to go out there and, and take a look. And, and if you have, go back again, because it's really, the entire exhibition is mesmerizing. But I would like to ask Virginia, what drew to you to Cuba? 
how were your ideas that you went in with, how did they evolve, how did they morph, the more you learned about the island, the more you learned about the people? Well, I, I, came, about, I came to this subject in a kind of unusual way in that, to make a long story short, essentially I, I kind of inherited a house in Miami that had been in my family since the 40s. My grandparents had built this house. And I had no idea that, um, until I went there, that the house was actually in Little Havana. And so, <laughs> so I, went, I went there in the uh, late 80s and um, ended up spending some time there and was involved with family business and, and ultimately, sadly, I had to sell the house. But in the meantime, uh, we were uh, the last Anglo family in the neighborhood. All around us were Cuban exiles and lovely people that we met in the course of uh, having to do business, go to the bank and the grocery store, and uh, we had a yard sale in the neighborhood. And so I ended up uh, meeting and speaking with many of, of, of these people who were very passionate about Cuba and about their experiences in having to leave Cuba. And so I, I always thought it was a place I would love to go and see firsthand. Um, I thought it'd be best to talk about Cuba kind of from the standpoint of my own very personal experience as an artist. I'm not an expert on Cuba, I'm not a historian, but I, I got my first camera when I was seven years old and um, the, my greatest pleasure as a child was um, receiving the magazines uh, that came to our house, National Geographic and Time and Life magazine. Uh, well, perhaps not Time, but Look magazine, and looking at the photographs. And I always thought that would be the most exciting thing in the world was to be a photographer and to travel to interesting places. So I, ultimately, even though I was an English major in college, I, I did ultimately become a photographer. In fact, uh, one time I showed photographs to my English class, and um, after looking at these pictures, the students turned to me and they said, you should be a photographer. <laughs> so anyway, ultimately I followed that uh, passion and um, so uh, one, uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to Cuba in 2001 for the first time and I was immediately struck by um, the, how, how visual everything was in the landscape and and seem, seem, everything seemed fresh and immediate. Uh, history was literally written on every surface, <laughs> on walls, uh, even as you can see in this photograph, on trees, uh, literally rocks spelling out uh, slogans in, on uh, the hillside. And it was so visual that I, I knew that I had to come back with my 8x10 view camera and, and photograph there. So this is a photograph from Kyberian, which is a fishing coast on the north coast, um, fishing village on the north coast of Cuba, and the, the town is uh, over the years was covered with various murals and paintings, m most of uh, which were done by the same artist. Um, but we were greeted uh, by billboards such as this, where I was just. Um, taken with the idea that these were the Mar Marlboro men of Cuba, uh, uh, Cienfuegos and Che Guevara, and, and so instead of selling cigarettes, they were selling revolution. And uh, actually, I don't know if you can see this, but there is, there's not a cigarette in the photograph, but there is a cigar. Mm -hmm. Cienfuegos uh, is holding a cigar in his hand. 
but I felt that I knew that these things were fugitive, that they weren't really going to last. Uh, I mean, as an island lacerated by hurricanes and high winds and uh, the vicissitudes of politics, uh, I, I felt that these things were not going to last. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to document as much of the signs uh, and paintings as possible. Um, another photograph, of course, of Che Guevara. Um, the, all the signs and billboards were based on photographs. And gradually I began to see all those photographs in various museums and collections. And of course, this one by the famous uh, Cuban photographer Corda. And Which is in the exhibition. Yes, yes, this is in the exhibition. But um, it re this, this reminds me that so much of our idea about Cuba has been formulated by the photographs that we've seen. And there have been magnificent photographs made by um, not just the Cuban photographers, say Corda and Corrales, but Bert Glynn was a, a Life magazine photographer, and uh, depicting you know, a kind of heroism and grandeur and um, that I think has certainly fed into our romanticism about the island. I wanted to visit places of history, the things that I remembered from my childhood, like the Bay of Pigs or the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I, I sought out those places in Cuba. So for example, when I heard about the, ca the caves where uh, Che Guevara and 200 men were sequestered during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I knew I wanted to go there and actually visit that place and make a photograph. Of, of literally that location. And I have a vivid imagination, so it was a place where I felt that imagination and fact could come together in a depiction of a place. Um, the Bay of Pigs uh, turned out to be a much more abstract situation. Uh, you know, I, I was hoping to find something um, very dramatic like crashed airplanes or something like that. And unfortunately, there was just this kind of exquisite body of water and this jagged shoreline. But I began to realize that the light and the color and the atmosphere um, made the picture about something else. It was a long exposure, about 12 minutes, but there was something very ephemeral and it was about, about time passing. And so maybe without the caption, you would not know what place this was. But I like the idea that the viewer can bring something to the viewing of a photograph. And so what you might know about history or place would merge with the actual picture. And so this is the same jagged shoreline that was there waiting for the, um, the exiles and their CIA counterparts when they um, were attempting to invade Cuba. A picture like this might look like a charming seaside um, Depiction. I, of course, I was. I've been influenced by uh, my forebears, like Walker Evans. So, of course, I'm tremendously honored to be in an exhibition with his work. But also painters like John Constable, for example. Uh, I'm, I was interested in sort of the beauty uh, of something like this. But also realizing that there are very subtle things that one could learn um, uh, about about a place or about that the photograph might reveal. And, and, and I think captions are important in helping that along. So that, uh, for example, in the distance, there is a, um, a manned lookout station. And uh, as I was taking this photograph, an older man passed by and asked what I was photographing. And I said I was photographing the fishing boats and the beach. And uh, this is Hiron, also the site of the invasion. And he said, ah, the Aqua Frontera.
so <laughs> the water frontier. And so instantly I realized, oh my gosh, this man has associations with this place that are beyond anything that I could really understand myself. Or a place like this, um, uh, Hibara, a, a northern seacoast town. And when we first came to Hibara, um, someone that we met there was showing us around, and I asked if, if he knew anyone who had tried to leave Cuba. And he said, well, hundreds of people, practically everyone I know, including my father. And so we spent the day with him and learning about his family. And at the end of the day, when we had said goodbye, there was a storm approaching and uh, this very tumultuous sea. And as soon as I saw it, I realized, my gosh, this is the same sea that his father, his family members and friends had thrown themselves into in one way or another in order to escape their homes. And, and so I, I made this photograph, uh, again, a long exposure, high wind buffeting the camera and the tripod. My husband was very helpful trying to keep everything stable long enough to make, make a picture. But for me, it's a picture about that kind of the beauty, the violence of the sea, uh, and about Cuba as an island separated from the United States by a mere 90 miles. A photograph um, of a shoe store in Camahuay, and, and at the time this picture was made, which I think was around 200, 2005 or so, there were no shoes, but simply the young, a portrait of the young and hopeful Che Guevara. Now that shoe store probably has lots of things from China. China. Uh, another photograph that I think functions as a kind of metaphor, it's a, a stage in a cultural center in Remedios, and uh, again, another thing that's no longer there. But this Cuba for me, I, I came to understand through reading and um, history books and, uh, and other sources, really that, it was, that it's a, a country of paradox, of illusion, and... Uh, things are not always quite what they seem. So for me, this photograph uh, functions as a kind of metaphor for, for uh, the fragility and the illusion of what we might think Cuba really is. The last photograph is one I'm particularly fond of uh, that I'll show you t uh, tonight, but um, it's a train station in Caberian. And uh, I just loved everything about it. It's, it's so much about the color and the way it was painted and the political slogans. Uh, on the wall uh, spoke of not only the idealism of the revolution, but also what the revolution was not. And so, uh, again, this idea of fragility, um, the, the, these benches, um, the, the, even the plants uh, sitting there in the middle of the floor kind of struggling for survival uh, was very eloquent for me and, and uh, poignant, a poignant picture of Cuba. I like to go back to places that I photographed um, and just, in a sense, return to the scene of the crime when possible. So when I was passing through Kyberian, uh this past March, I said to my <coughs> husband, please, let's go to the train station and see what that looks like now. And I was shocked to see that everything in this picture is gone except for the benches. And so I took another photograph of, of this vacant space uh, and the way in which things have disappeared. Thank you. Thank you.
So next we're going to turn to Ned Sublette, and I've known Ned for many, many years uh, when we were, well, when I was in New York, and, and uh, Ned uh, really, I think, captured the imagination of many, many Americans um, by being almost um, a cultural ambassador or um, sometime magician in, in getting artists uh, from Cuba out of the country and into the United States. Um, certainly going down there and uh, spending some real time um, researching the work and um, making sure that it was authentic. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that, uh, that Ned has uh, brought to the American public is his own record label, Cuba Disc, which introduced the, the music of, of, of many of the artists that have now become uh, almost household names here. And of course, Cuban music um, is not only something that has captured the imagination of American audiences, but you can go to places as far away as Morocco um, or China and uh, you know find places called the Havana Cafe. Um, so it's really become almost a, a global um, iconography, a global image um, of what is Havana, what is Cuba, uh, as a mythical um, island, as a forbidden place. Um, uh, Ned is also a musician in his own right, and he is an author, and he has several uh, books to his uh, name. And uh, afterwards, by the way, I would encourage you both, well, all three of our guests are authors, so I believe that there's um, examples of, of your books for sale outside, so make sure that you take time to, to look at that. But, but Ned, you know, um, I think that because, you know, we, we just heard about a visual perspective of the island, what about the musical perspective, and how has the um, the opening and closing of um, the, the intake and outtake of Cuban music as our own um, administrations in Washington, D.C. changed and the politics have changed from, uh, you know, s sort of um, semi-liberal to archly conservative. How did that affect uh, the way that people are seeing music specifically from the island in the United States? And what are your thoughts on that? Ooh. Um, <laughs> well, let's let's. I like to go back to the. Well, I like to go back to the Phoenicians, but we'll just go back to the 16th century tonight. Um, the you know, Havana was the first great capital, music capital of the hemisphere, and this already started in the 16th century, uh, when uh, Havana was the drop-off point, the place where the fleet that was bringing uh, Europe a money supply ripped out of the bowels of Mexico and Peru uh, stopped. It took weeks, months to get the fleet ready to go, ready to ship out. Uh, it was the most heavily defended point in the hemisphere. And during these weeks and weeks, sailors, uh, large numbers of them, would do what sailors do, hang out, uh, drink, dance, whore, gamble. And this Havana was already a center of where all of the creolizing Afro-Latin musics that were already almost immediately began played all over the hemisphere. They all, they all wound up in the melting pot 
of Havana for a little while before going back to Spain. There's a back and forth current between Havana and Spain that went on for over 200 years. Every year, the new jams, the new dances would come in from Havana to Spain. And it was, of course, a two-way street. So whatever was new in Europe would wind up in Havana as well. This process is profound. Um, the classic example is the Saraband of the Baroque dance suite, which was the Sarabanda, which was a, 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 a dance, a, a lascivious dance that uh, we first mention of it is in Panama and comes back via Havana to Sevilla and up through the New World and then many years later winds up slowed down and much less rhythmic in the repertoire of J.S. Bach. So this proceed, this. There's a process that's been going on a long time here. In the 20th century, uh, Cuban music, Ortiz would have called it reverse transculturation, traveled to Africa and became very important, basic music to Africa. The style Sukus from the Congo, that grew out of the, of the Cuban style that was retransplanted back there. Uh, so Cuban music is enormously influential. In the 19th century, there were three cities in the hemisphere with opera companies, Havana, New Orleans, and New York. And of the three, Havana's was generally acknowledged the best. Um, the contact between Havana and New Orleans is particularly important because New Orleans became a city under the Spanish when the governor of Louisiana reported to the Captain General of Cuba, and for the last third of the 18th century, that transcendental period that included the American, Haitian, and French revolutions, when Louisiana was uh, under Spain, was a, was a colony of Spain, during that period, the, the linkage was very tight, and it was both a black linkage as well as a Spanish linkage. There was a Congo current between New Orleans and Havana. All this is very deeply embedded in the culture of our hemisphere. Louis Moro Gottschalk in 1860, uh, the last antebellum year, publishes Ojos Criollos, Danse Cubain in New Orleans. Uh, Cuban dance using the boom, boom, boom rhythm that is now, we now know it as reggaeton. Same theory. It's the Antillean beat. Boom, 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 boom. Right hand, bong, gong, king, gong, gong, king, gong, 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 king. If you listen to it, it sounds like ragtime. Very much like ragtime. Yeah. But it's 35 years before the ragtime boom, and it's a danse cubain. This influence has been going on for a long time. Uh, the peanut vendor in 1931 transformed the music of the world quite literally. Brought new instruments and a new way of playing. Uh, African-American music was in swing time. These guys were playing straight time, linked together by a clave. It's the other great tradition in terms of music. So within the hemisphere, Cuban music uh, plays a central <coughs> role. We have these two great traditions in opposition to each other, the African-American and the Afro-Cuban. Um, in the 50s, I mean, every week, 50 million people heard Marco Riso's I Love Lucy theme. Um, <laughs> I'm quite serious. It was just a part and parcel of North American culture. Incidentally, I don't use the term American to refer to the United States in opposition to Cuba because the Cubans are under the impression that they too are Americans. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, the Chano Poso with Dizzy Gillespie is not just important as a, you know, a, something important that happened in jazz. Chano Poso made a fundamental revolution in American music, apart from introducing the tumbadora or conga drum into the repertoire, 
into the, into the instrumentarium. He also showed uh, a new way to play, a new way to stack up a polyrhythm. Uh, and every important, every black musician in the United States was aware of Montek. It was Dizzy's biggest record. In New Orleans, the impact of Cuban music was intense. Uh, in many places, the uh, hotels, you know, if you look at the New Yorker from 1952, the hotels in New York would have a uh, one American band and one Latin band for dancing because Cuban music was pretty much identical with dancing mm -hmm. in the United States in the 50s. Much of our idea of a nightclub is modeled on something that happened in Cuba. The Las Vegas cabaret show is modeled on the Havana Tropicana-type review. Uh, so much of this is so deep in our musical DNA. And then we got rock and roll. And rock and roll is pretty much built on the template of Cuban music in many ways, especially the cha-cha-cha, which was a fundamental template of rock and roll. Cha-cha-cha um, blew up in 1953, before Elvis. It was already happening. Uh, and uh, take a classic example here in Los Angeles, um, where two very important uh, pieces of fundamental rock and roll got happening, both for Mexican kids who wanted to dance cha-cha-cha as the audience. Uh, the big band leader, uh, Cuban band leader in L.A. was René Trosset, um, who had a number by Rosendo Ruiz Jr. called El Loco Cha-Cha in his repertoire. Uh, Amar en el Loco was the title in Cuba. And uh, in his, in his uh, arrangement of it, the rhythm went ding-ding-ding, ding-ding, ding-ding-ding. Ding, ding. You know where I'm going with that, right? Ricky, R Ricky Rilera and the Rhythm Rockers, a band led by a pair of Filipino-American uh, brothers in U.S. In, in Los Angeles, would play the El Loco Cha-Cha because you could stretch out on it. You could just play that great groove all night as long as the people wanted to dance. And the kids wanted to dance Cha-Cha-Cha. And they had a singer, an African-American from South Central, born in Excelsior, Louisiana, named Richard Berry, who wrote the lyrics that made it Louis Louis. Um, the other guy here, Richie Valens, um, who uh, brought that song, song that in Mexico is a son joropo, it's identified with Veracruz, but they did a rocked up cha-cha-cha version, La Bamba, um, with New Orleans' Earl Palmer on drums and the recording made in L.A. Uh, Earl had moved out here. And, of course, uh, that one goes, para bailar la bamba, para bailar la bamba, it's one, two. And they really, yeah. Earl Palmer overdubbed the woodblock, uh, an unusual procedure at the time, that pop, 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 just to make sure that y'all knew where the cha-cha-cha steps <laughs> would go, because maybe you didn't know. Um, uh, Richie Valens went down with Buddy Holly five weeks after the Cuban Revolution. Yeah. It's, I mean, it periodizes that tightly. Um, the first, rock, first period of rock and roll ends then, um, at the time of the Cuban Revolution. Now... Fidel, Raul, Camilo, and Che coming out of the Sierra Maestra with long hair and beards. Band of four guys with long hair. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, <laughs> nobody, this was not happening in the United States at the time. Rock and roll guys had like little preppy haircuts and wore thick black glasses. Or, you know, or they were African Americans who did not wear long hair. Um, but there's an article, there's a little item in the Chicago Tribune about a month, I forget the date, after the triumph of the revolution, which talks about how young men in Havana are growing their hair long because it's the latest style and the girls love it. The, uh, pro, the imagistic prototype of the rock and roll band 
was Fidel, Raul, Camilo, and Che. Did you know that? <laughs> the things you learn at Zocalo. The things you learn at Zocalo, baby. And we're just getting warm. We're just getting warm. Because what happens after that is there was, there was two basic flavors of rock and roll. There was the African-American shuffle time. Or, you know, Fats Domino. And there was the bop, 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 straight eighths feel, right? The swing feel, the shuffles drop out in the 60s because basically the British drummers didn't swing, but they could play straight eights. Um, it's not easy to play a good shuffle, but straight eights they could play. And once you're playing straight eights, you are reaching for that Cuban bag of tricks because that's where it was developed. To, that's where that, that, those layers and layers of polyrhythmic uh, devices were worked out. And they may not have known they were doing it, but that's where they went. Uh, to take classic example, um, I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, which is mm -hmm. a cha-cha-cha. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> That's what I... I mean, cha-cha-cha. <laughs> Kids weren't dancing cha-cha-cha. But there it is. That's not African-American music. That's not the blues. Um, we see this recycling over and over as we enter the memory hole. Meanwhile, in New York City, I heard Eddie Palmieri say once uh, on the stage of the Blue Note, Eddie Palmieri, the, uh, everybody, everybody here knows Eddie Palmieri for sure. He's never sounded better than he sounds these days, by the way. Check out Eddie Palmieri if he's coming anywhere near you. Uh, I heard him say on the stage of the Blue Note a few years ago, there was the mambo, and there, then there was the cha-cha-cha, and after that there was the pachanga, and after that there was nothing. <laughs> The irony of this, of course, is what there was after that was Eddie Palmieri. Uh, <laughs> and he was being modest. But, yeah, after the, the pachanga was the last of the Cuban dance uh, manias to really come in. And after that, something new had to happen. And we got boogaloo, we got, um, and we got salsa, which was a, a refrying in a modern urban context of the classic urban forms. I don't know if that answered your question, but um, you set me off. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. And and we will be here after. <laughs> after I'm only going to talk about pictures. Charla. <laughs> uh, and you'll get to talk to our panelists uh, afterwards uh, over a nice glass of wine. So Lillian Guerra, Lillian Guerra is the daughter of. Cuban immigrants to the United States. She was born here in the United States. And she is um, a PhD in um, history. And she has written three books, uh, Popular Expression and National Identity in Puerto Rico, The Myth of Jose Marti, Conflicting Nationalisms in Early 20th Century Cuba, and soon to be released, Visions of Power, Revolution, Redemption, and Resistance in Cuba, 1959 to 1971. Um, Dr. Guerra, there's a whole Dartmouth thing going on here. Um, graduated from Dartmouth and currently is uh, Associate Professor of Cuban and Caribbean History. We got um, top of the title there. Cuban and Caribbean History at the University of Florida, my alma mater in Gainesville, Florida, and um, when Lillian and I spoke yesterday, um, she was telling me about the radically different um, 
mythology that exists with younger people, her students, the people that she comes into contact with all the time as a professor uh, in Gainesville, which interestingly enough, even though, you know, obviously Miami is the biggest um, uh, Cuban-American population in all of the United States, Gainesville is at the very top of the state, and it's much more of a southern uh, town than any, than. Miami, which is more of a Caribbean town, and um, when I went to Gainesville, there was like, you know, maybe... It was real southern. It was really, really the south. It was 1970, and everybody talked like this, and um, there was like, you know, maybe eight Cubans at the school. Now we have at least 15, right? <laughs> uh, it's doubled, um, but uh, <laughs> Professor Guerra is going to talk to us about how the... Um, the perception and the the um, the whole um, mythology of what is Cuba has evolved uh, largely because of the internet and some of the uh, some of the um, things that you can find online now. So, uh, well, Lydia, first I'm wondering how to get my pictures up. Um, press the right hand arrow. Thank there you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was given a task, which is. How do Americans imagine Cuba? And I am answering that question. Um, <laughs> I'm like, uh. <laughs> I would say I've only been at the University of Florida for a year. I've spent nine years at other institutions, and I've taken about 86 um, U.S. students to Cuba over the course of four, five, five trips. Um, and so this is a reflection in many respects of the many, many interchanges um, with hundreds of Cubans that Americans had while they were there, U.S. Americans. I think, in fact, what, how, Cuban, how Americans imagine Cuba is um, exotic. But it's not exotic in the way that um, one would perhaps think of. Um, for, I think, people who knew Cuba before 1959, exotic means mulatas and rum. But what makes Cuba exciting for young people, and young is relative, I'm 40, I think I'm young, <laughs> um, is that it's politically taboo. It's, um, it's a politically exotic place. And so that, but that in itself is an e too easy answer. I mean, when I thought of the answers to this question, before Americans go to Cuba, they have, this is, the fault, this is the way they would answer this question. How do they imagine Cuba? Well, they imagine it as Castro, cars, communism, and cane, which is sugar. And these things are really, um, each one of them, um, very complicated. Uh, very complicated for us. Um, Nonetheless, I have been very shocked over the last six months um, because I discovered in the course of teaching my Cuba Puerto Rico class at the University of Florida, thanks to the Florida Press, that we have come to imagine Cuba in ways that I thought were really dead. I thought that we had stopped imagining Cuba as a place where U.S. power could be exerted um, really without question, but at least by certain sectors of this population. Um, and I discovered this um, video game, and I'm not a player of video games, but all of my students were talking about this video game on and off, and finally I you know, started coming out in the Florida press that the number one video game in the United States for players between the ages of 9 and 20 is um, Call of Duty. So Call of Duty is a video game that allows you, well, well the goal is to go on secret missions, secret CIA missions, um, to Cold War destinations like Cuba and Vietnam, these are the two main 
places you go. And essentially, not only do you get to reimagine these places, but you absolutely reimagine the history. And it's not history that this game teaches. It's amnesia. <laughs> um, first, you imagine yourself in the Cuba scenario in a U.S. military occupation. You have an invasion of Cuba. And the goal of the game is to reverse history. It is um, for you to carry out the one mission that we tried again and again to fulfill and we never did, right? What do you think that would be? Kill Castro. Now these are actual scenes from the game, so please do not put them on the website because I think in fact I might get trouble. <laughs> um, and in this scene, I mean, you're supposed to, for some reason, Fidel is in El Morro. He's hanging out with a sleazy prostitute. And, um, and you discover him there, and then you're supposed to shoot him. And that's, the, that's the, the goal of the game. Now, to me, it's a stunning thing that in my class of, you know, almost 80 students, 79% um, of them had played this game. And I didn't ask them until the last day of class. And I thought to myself, these are really committed students. I mean, this is a hard class um, and very complex class. We compared Cuba to Puerto Rico. I, let me go back for a second. I um, was really stunned by this. And I think that the question I had was, why is, this, why is this so appealing? What kinds of lessons and values are we teaching our children that 9 to 20-year-olds um, would gain from this kind of a game? So I think the primary lesson is that history is a form of entertainment for Americans. It can be very much a form of entertainment. And when they go to Cuba, it stops entirely being about us. Um, we stop being protagonists. And Americans discover, I think, in Cuba that it's a dangerous place. That's why we're not allowed to go. It's a dangerous place because everything we ever imagined was true is sort of turned on its head. First, you know, you get in a taxi from the airport to virtually anywhere, and this guy is asking you everything you could possibly imagine about life in the United States, and you are asking him questions, and he is being, you know, point-blank frank about everything. And you find that you have political discussions with, any, with anyone, no matter the age of the person. I mean, nobody in Cuba is remotely apathetic. And we in the United States tend to be very comfortable, very apathetic. Um, I think increasingly so, the younger generations, now that I'm 40, I think. You know? <laughs> you know, There's no Walmart in Cuba, there's no McDonald's, there's no place to hide from reality. And um, that is what, it's, it, one of my students um, who was old, who was a 30-year-old Yale School of Management student, said to me that he felt naked the whole time he was in Cuba, and he had never felt so happy in his whole life. Because there's something about not hiding. We, we can't hide behind what makes us feel powerful. So I also think that Cuba is a place, as um, my colleague just said, it's a place where there's a topography of memory that is everywhere. You cannot escape history. It is there. And, you know, things that you take for granted, like those American cars, I mean, you discover, talking to anyone who's driving one, that the entire interior, motor, engine, etc., is Soviet, or it's some kind of compilation of six different cars. And this man and his father and grandfather have been maintaining this car by working on it every single day. 
And in so many respects, they're metaphors for how hard life is in Cuba. No class of society, not even people who are professors um, and who one would think would have an easier kind of time, nobody escapes in Cuba from the government cutting your electricity, your water, at a random arbitrary time when you need it the most, like when you're taking a shower. <laughs> um, and I could go on and on about that. But every, you cannot take anything for granted. And, and in fact, most tourists, if they stay there long enough, if students are there long enough, they also become part of this um, in, you know, inescapable lucha, which is the word most, you can you hear it more times a day than anything else. Buildings. I mean, even without talking to Cubans, buildings have memory in Cuba. This um, is in the Plaza de Cristo, if anybody knows, Old Havana. And, um, and it's right in front of the old church there. And incredibly, it's called La Maravilla, which, <laughs> which means the marvel. And they've never taken this sign down. It's an early 20th century sign. Um, there is a cypress tree growing out of the front of the building. Um, <laughs> And people in that building have their own memories, but that building has features to it that are Soviet, that are from the colonial period, late colonial period. I mean, it, it is amazing. And in front of it are two water tanks because the building has no um, functioning um, water system, only three blocks down from you know, a five-star or four-star hotel. Um, so buildings have memories. Buildings ha tell stories about themselves, and they also tell about what it is like to be Cuban in Cuba, which is very different than what you become if you leave, or what you were um, if you left and, and are today, or somebody like me who grew up in Kansas. Um, I think, to be quick here, I think Cubans also make extraordinary teachers, and um, that is also what makes it dangerous. I mean, they challenge us. They ask us things like, you know, is it true that there's crime? I mean, is it true that if you walk across the street, you get shot? You know? <laughs> I mean, they hear really um, incredibly caricatured um, versions of life in the United States on the you know, daily, nightly newscast, and they want to know, you know, is it true that black um, students go to college? I mean, they ask my black students who are studying in Cuba <laughs> this question, and it's shocking um, to be asked that. Some are insulted, and yet the person asking is a black Cuban um, who, who thinks that the civil rights movement failed because they were taught that. And they question that, you know. So they make the best teachers, and we make excellent students um, because they, because they do challenge, and we learn about ourselves. And I think we have to explain the United States, and they explain Cuba better than I could, certainly. Um, anyone, really. Um, I think Cubans are archives, individual archives. Everybody has, has very complex memory and explanation um, for everything that's happened, um, even if they're 25 and didn't live half of it. Um, and so to end my comments, I would say that if historical amnesia is a way of life for many Americans, remembering is what it means to be Cuban in Cuba. You have to remember. And it is what makes it such an incredible place to go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before we turn it over to the audience, and I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of questions because 
I mean, it's just palpable of sitting up here, just the, the amount of engagement that there is in the audience, so thank you for that. But I just wanted to give the panelists an opportunity to ask each other a question if there's something that you want to... Uh, something that piqued your interest from another uh, person's uh, comments and... Uh, you want to, there's a burning issue. We've been chatting for hours. <laughs> you guys were really late. <laughs> well, one thing that you said about the cars, and, and also you, we had talked about cars too because you were saying that was one of the sort of cliches. There's seven pictures everybody takes of Cuba. A blind man can walk down the street in Cuba and take good pictures. It's a fascinating place to look at. Most of what we see in Cuba, from Cuba, is tourist pictures, really. Mm -hmm. And it's the old car picture. The tobacco twister picture, the revolution kitsch picture, the, the malacone picture, the hinatera picture, the santeria picture. It's the things that naturally occur to you to take pictures. When Cubans take pictures, they tend to be rather different, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what you're saying is that Cubans, uh, they come with, and it's interesting because there were almost no Cuban movies prior to the revolution, right? They didn't have that fake history that we learn from movies. You know, they, uh, I mean, movies are lies, right? Can I say that in, in California? Uh, can I say that in LA? Uh, you know, most of us learned history from movies that were lies, uh, you know. Uh, and in Cuba, they didn't have that. They only started to have a film industry after the revolution. Well, I gotta say that that's not correct. Okay. It's a myth. <laughs> it's a total myth. Um, you know, Cuba had produced, just in the 1950s, Cubans produced more than 62 movies. 62? 62. And there are fabulous films like the La Bella. We should do, we should do a, a showing of these films. La Bella Salvaje, for instance. You can imagine what that's about. <laughs> um, there's another one called Angeles de la Calle, um, which is about prostitutes um, and this guy who falls in love with her. I mean, they're, 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 Cuba was the capital of the, of, the, of the radio novela and the telenovela. So these are, you know, what are basically soap operas. And it, they had 11 t television stations, independently owned television stations in Cuba in 1954, two years after television was essentially invented. Um, Cuba had more television sets than any other country in the world. There was one television set for every 25 inhabitants in the city of Havana in 1958. So this is... So this is a place that was highly connected to Hollywood, in fact. And it had its own mini Hollywood. I mean, it was very much a, a, a fiction created by ICAIC as a, an organization, the Cuban film industry, when it was founded in 1959, um, that um, there was no film before then. And to their credit, they're, you know, they've been silenced for many, many years, but Luciano de Castillo, for instance, is a fabulous Cuban historian who lives in Cuba, who works for ICAIC, who has published three books on um, film before 1959. Um, and my own cousin, Raul Rodriguez, who is now deceased, um, was a historian of film. So imagery, I mean, the photography, which is so relevant to our understanding of Cuba and the revolution, and to theirs as well, I mean, it, it confirmed people's euphoria. I mean, they, if you went to a mass rally, there were a million people. You really didn't know what that meant until you got home and you saw the picture of it. You know, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that's what made you realize the awesome power that came from these mass rallies. And not surprisingly, Fidel made that the staple. I mean, that was the, the, the um, I think, one of the main means by which um, the United States was effectively defeated 
um, long before Playa Giron, you know, the mass rally became a means by which the Cubans could say, no, we are with this revolution. And, you know, a million people, I mean, in 1959 alone, there were approximately about 22 mass rallies of more than a million people in Havana. Hmm. And so that, I, I mean, I think that's very important, that Cubans had a very strong relationship to romantic images, um, to, to these kinds of filmic narratives, and then very importantly in the beginning of the revolution, to themselves as these protagonists of these extraordinary collective dramas that could only be understood in a picture. And at the moment of revolution, there was an incredible installed base of televisions mm -hmm. like nowhere else, which could immediately be put to service mm -hmm. in the use of the revolution in Cuba. The revolution was televised. Yeah. Okay, so on that note, <laughs> we're going to turn it over to the audience. And I have a couple of questions or comments, maybe uh, uh, more appropriate. One to the gentleman in the uh, panel is that you talked about the influence of... Uh, Afro-American and Afro-Cuban music and its influence on rock and roll, which uh, had an influence on culture here in California and in the United States. But what about 12-bar blues and its influence on both of those uh, basic medias before they became so-called <coughs> Afro-Cuban and uh, Afro-American well, jazz or blues? Uh, in terms of jazz, in terms of rock and roll, 12-bar blues is tremendously important. What we got after Manteca was this little remarked-on period of rhythmic experimentation where especially African-American musicians started to find ways of incorporating Afro-Cuban the Afro-Cuban thing, some aspect of it, into what they did, and they tried all kinds of different hybrids of it. Uh, New Orleans, you got a bunch of those, for example. Uh, in bebop, certainly, you're going back and forth. I mean, the classic example is they go into what they think of as rumba time, and then when they get to the break, they break into a shuffle for the B section, then back change times again. W.C. Handy go, does that already going back to the St. Louis Blues, which starts with that same habanera rhythm. And then breaks into a shuffle. Uh, both of these are present. These are the two great traditions. But my point is always that in looking at the development of, Afro, of, Af, of um, music in the United States, one should never discount the entrance of Cuban music. Very often, the people who brought it into white American popular music were doing it by copying something that had already been established by African Americans. Uh, many of the famous like uh, Guaracha rock, rumba rock, whatever you want to call them, records, were white bands covering black bands who had already done the same thing. Okay, I better understand your uh, yeah. uh, premise then. And for the uh, a lady on the end there, the, the revolution or the way that Americans see Cuba was because of the ignorance of the American population towards the struggle that's going on here in this country. That's right. You know, that... Uh, well, I, I, I mean, find that unforgivable mm -hmm. that we still suffer with that blinder, mm -hmm. that we, we're not really looking at the causes of the struggles in our own economic situations and our own cultural uh, differences, why we still can't just get along. 
I was wondering the opinion of the four on the panel with regard to opening complete relations with Cuba. I mean, if we can go to Germany, our enemy in World War II, Japan, our enemy in World War II, the Soviet Union, our enemy in the Cold War, Vietnam, our enemy in the Vietnam War, what do each of the people on the panel think about President Obama, Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton saying, let's forget about this ban on travel, ban on relationships, and so forth. And the second question is, can you talk about Celia Cruz a little bit? <laughs> well, those two are really tied that's together. Two, that's two different questions. <laughs> um, Lily, well, I'll start? be quick. I mean, I certainly believe that if you really want to transform Cuba... You can, we could go back simply to just what was under Clinton, which was so, which was overly overwhelming. Over 100,000 students, according to the State Department, that stud, U.S. students who studied legally in Cuba with their own U.S. programs in, in 2001. And that, I think, is an amazing statistic. And personally witnessed, I lived in Cuba from 96 to 97 for my dissertation research, and witnessed that year when, because of the flooding of the place with Americans um, visiting and Cubans visiting from the United States, you know, there was this incredible entrepreneurial class that became economically independent of the state. And we're not talking about people making millions. We're talking about people, you know, who were not just servicing the foreigners, but the bringing of money into the island meant that suddenly, you know, had relojeros, um, timbirichis, what are these tiny little kiosks and people who repair things, people selling to other Cubans. There was an internal market that was not controlled by the state and that effectively um, the state could not compete with. And that scared the hell out of the Cuban state. And not surprisingly, they did everything they could to eliminate most of those entrepreneurial um, industries within two years. And then the Bush administration came along, eliminated all the cultural and educational exchanges, and did the rest. You know, I mean, it, it, if we want to see a positive change that will be largely controlled by Cubans, the best way to do that, ironically, is to, to let Americans go there. I mean... <laughs> And Lillian, don't, uh, don't you think one of the big problems in allowing that to happen is that all the examples that you gave um, don't compare to the Cuban exile community in the United States that is trying to prevent that from happening? I think that's a small sector, but it's the, it's the politically powerful sector that that, you know, is not necessarily representative of the vast majority mm -hmm. of Cubans, but it is true. It is true that, for instance, you know, FIU annually does this survey of the Cuban population, and you can look at FIU's website and find the results. And one of the most striking results annually since 2001 has been if, when asked, you know, these are 5,000 Cubans surveyed um, in South Florida, when asked, do you think the United States should lift the embargo and lift um, the ban on travel? The majority say yes. The next question is, would you be willing to say that publicly? And that no. group that says, yes, let's get away, get rid of all these policies, always less than 3%. And that to me is tragic. And what about the other thing you were mentioning earlier, though, about uh, the Florida um, law about traveling to Cuba? Yeah, the Florida, I mean, the that. state of Florida has really gone retrograde on us. We, um, I mean, I got there a year ago, and a week after I arrived, a federal court in Florida had reversed an earlier decision and essentially reinstituted 
um, a policy, it only applies to the state of Florida, but it, it bans all faculty and students um, from the University of Florida's public system um, and private system from going to Cuba for research purposes. We cannot use research funds even if they are external. So if I won the Guggenheim, God willing, and you know, who knows, <laughs> I haven't applied yet. <laughs> I couldn't use the Guggenheim to go. You can't use it. And um, unfortunately, you know, the, the state of Florida university system has sued the, the state of Florida, and this case is before the U.S. Supreme Court, but I, I really don't believe that we're going to move, that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to move quickly on it. Um, it they, will, they will inevitably have to, to say federal law trumps yeah. state law, but that could take three years, and this law has essentially devast already devastated um, you know, the place where you have the greatest number of specialists. And, you know, FIU has, I mean, the best people there have left. I mean, forget, maybe I shouldn't say the best, but among the best. <laughs> <laughs> They've lost people. I mean, you know, Lisandro Perez left. I mean, a man um, who's been there for 25 years left. You know, and I think that, and who knows how long I will remain. I mean, I think um, that this is incredible. And it's all about controlling that possibility that, that Cubans, you know, young Cubans would go there and question and, and, ha and develop this personal relationship because the most amazing thing is that, you know, people develop a very personal relationship to the island, to the society when they're there. And I think, again, it's because you can go to Mexico and you can see poverty, but you don't really live it. It's very easy for you to shield yourself. Um, but if you go to Cuba, you know, and you stay in some guest house, you know, which is where most Americans want to stay, and you get to hang out with this Cuban family who has this little bed and breakfast, you know, you're going to see how, <laughs> you're going to yeah. see how tough it is. The purpose you know? of the travel ban is to keep you from going there and seeing it with your own eyes mm -hmm. and forming your own informed opinion. Yeah. Okay, um, even though not everybody answered, I think that probably uh, everybody feels that the embargo has actually been counterproductive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to changing the island. And so um, I'm, we're not going to uh, talk about Celia right now. <laughs> I, I think that we probably don't have that many more, uh, that much more time for questions, so I'd rather go to another, okay? Hola, aquí estoy. Okay, ya te veo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, um, in recent history, we've seen all these regimes fall and the people uprising against the regime, um, demanding um, democracy. I don't think that's going to happen in the United States. The right. Sorry, couldn't help it. Your answer says a lot, depending on how you see it. So um, my question is, what do you think the Cuban people, especially the young people, because I have cousins in Cuba that I'm now in touch with through Facebook. Imagine that. Facebook, you know? <laughs> Which I would have never thought in my life. I'm the exact age of the revolution. I was born December 15th, 1958. Mm. Castro came into power two weeks after I was born to Santi Espiritu. As I was coming to the world, they were firing and the, the lights were going off in the, in the, in the uh, hospital and so forth. So I told my friends, imagine one person being in power for 52 F blah, 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 years, 
you know, whether you like the regime or not, imagine one person, Obama, Clinton, Bush, whoever, for 52 years being in power, the longest dictatorship in the history of the earth. So we ask ourselves, why don't the young people, because I know my cousin through Facebook wants to get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. And everything he wears is an American flag and, you know, the Beatles t-shirts and he loves us and his sister is here, he's there, he can't come, you know, for the reasons that you guys all know about. Why don't the young people uprise, get together, especially the college kids that are so, you know, vocal and now there's like rap groups that they're being very vocal, they're at rap music against the government and, and why do you guys think that the people don't get together and demand the right to vote, not just for the Castro brothers, you know, Mm-hmm. but for somebody else? Well, I think there's a pretty easy answer to that. I mean, there are three safety valves for this, for this government in Cuba. One is that everybody wants to leave, and they allow them to leave. I mean, there are 20,000 Cubans a year, thanks to the negotiations of the Clinton administration, come here by the lottery called it Bumble. Um, you have lots of Cubans who are applying for Spanish citizenship, probably about 200,000 have received it. Um, or in the process of receiving it, and they are doing so because the Spanish government recognizes your right to citizenship if you have a father or grandfather who was born in Spain. And more than a million Spaniards came to Cuba in less than 20 years at the beginning of the 20th century. So a lot of people have this. And that is a means by which people um, can leave and go to Spain and live, or more likely, which is becoming more popular, you get that passport and you can come to the United States and visit and then return to Cuba with goods and and potentially whatever you made um, in the U.S. So that's one safety valve, and the safety valve of immigration has been there for a long time. Secondly, I think it's the safety valve of the desire to leave, you know, that young people have. And they don't want to get themselves into trouble um, because they might want to leave one day, and then they won't be able to leave. It's very difficult to get the Cuban government to give you a carta blanca, which is your, 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 what everybody calls the white paper that, you, that allows you to get out. And the third safety valve um, that the state has is the reality that it, they arbitrarily are constantly controlling your, your daily experience. I mean, through these issues like cutting electricity and not having water and the rations and, you know, the, the fear that they're going to... I mean, Raul Castro has now called the ration system, which has been in place since 1961... And which, on which Cubans do depend. I mean, they do depend on that. He has called that a millionaire subsidy... And when he did that, which was last April, people were horrified. And, you know, they have now had, you know, the six-party Congress declared they're going to end the ration system gradually. They're threatening to lay off, you know, another million Cubans. They already laid off about 500,000. I mean, people, because of what I described earlier, which is the elimination of the private sector, you know, the small-time private sector, and the ability to self-employ is still there, but there are very limited opportunities to do so for a number of reasons, taxation, licensing, zoning laws, everything the Cuban state could do to protect the state from competition they've done. So people are going to get laid off, and what the hell are they going to do? I mean, where are these jobs that Fidel, or Fidel rather, Raul says they're going to create for themselves? How are they going to do that? With what resources? I mean, I have seen Cuba become much more impoverished in the last 10 years than um, it was in the mid-90s. You know, and so I think that that's very relevant because, um, you know, if you go out and you stage a protest, it's going to be within minutes before you're arrested. Um, you have a lot of people, I mean, I think I mean, since 2008, Raul has radically expanded the number of paid 
paid, ununiformed um, secret police, we could call them. And when you see the films, I mean, you go to YouTube, and if anybody wants me to give you some advice, I can send you some, some YouTube slides. People have started to film these arrests, you know, and they're doing that with their cell phones. I mean, Yoani Sanchez um, tape recorded her own arrest twice, you know. <laughs> she put it on YouTube. I mean, you can hear the whole thing. And people are using the technology that they have been able to acquire in the last few years um, to record what has been happening for decades, but what has really been very intense in the last 15 years. Um, so, you know, it's not as if they're not protesting. I mean, if you want to see a student protest, the Instituto Superior de Arte staged an awesome protest, um, and they filmed it, they made a documentary of it, they had this friend who was up in the Canary Islands put it on YouTube, you can watch it. Um, and what did they do? They united as an entire student body to protest the fact that the food they were being given was, you know, comida de presos, I mean, something that could not be eaten. And one of the things they did that was so fabulous is they not only confronted all of the dirigentes, the people who are the members of the Communist Party, or administrators of the school about this. They staged a student strike. And then they had this fabulous performance piece where because there was no water in the dormitories to take a bath with, um, they used this horrific food to take a bath. <laughs> you know, and you see them washing themselves with these disgusting lentils, you know. Um, and the whole school is there, you know. But the, I think our, the big problem that they face is that the people on the island, others need to see these examples, they need to hear about them, and that is difficult. People do often hear, you call it radio, they call it radio bemba, um, lip radio, you hear rumors and, and you know stories, jokes are a huge source of political resistance. Um, but you know, it, it has been, it, it does take, um, it takes knowledge of examples that others have lost their fear. And I do think that those examples, have, the numbers of people who have taken risks have increased dramatically in the last two years, just two years. Um, so we'll see. I mean, this is not an, this is not an, for all the things I mentioned before, this is not an easy um, thing to protest. It's not easy to protest anywhere, but Cuba is especially difficult. So imagine you guys are being with a national audience, both for the U.S. and for Cuba. <laughs> And from your personal experiences, each of you, um, what, what would be, again, from your personal experiences, a lesson we could learn from Cuba and Cuba could actually learn from us? I hesitate to ask that, but, but from your personal experience, what, what could be the number one lesson each of you could share in both directions? Well, I guess that one of the things that I was most impressed with uh, when I met Cubans was their dignity um, their pride in, in um, their education and their, their knowledge about the world um, and uh, their resourcefulness. I, I have never seen people so uh, able to uh, be inventive and creative within the confines of the limitations that they live with every day. And it's dazzling. Uh, so I... I, I um, I feel embarrassed for the for the lavish lifestyles that we live and the, the stuff we throw away out of which Cubans could make much. And, and I think the sense that everyone is in this together, uh, for me, uh, I always remember this moment. It was one of the first 
it takes a while to understand what you're seeing in Cuba. Cubans sometimes live in their they live in their own code, really. If you come from outside, it takes a while to understand what you're seeing, which is the problem with the tourist pictures, because people are photographing a surface and don't necessarily know what they're looking at. And it takes a long time to see it. And I'd been there, I think it was, I'd been there two years. The second, you know, it'd been two years since my first trip, and it was during the worst part of the special period, um, when there's just terrible scarcities. And um, I remember a woman got a half a bottle of cooking oil when there wasn't any cooking oil to be had in all of Havana, and instead of hoarding it, she shared it out among her neighbors. Hmm. Um, I knew another woman who had, you get, your child gets a milk ration up to the age of, I forget seven. what, seven, right? <clears throat> and there was, a, the next door neighbor had an eight-year-old that wasn't getting a ration anymore, and she had like a five-year-old. And every morning, the mother of the eight-year-old would very embarrassedly come over to the fence, and the woman would share out mm. her own child's milk with the other child because she didn't think it was fair, the other child didn't get any. I saw many examples of this kind of behavior, uh, which is why Cuba could come through this special period mm -hmm. without turning on itself. Mm -hmm. um, it was really very impressive. Well, I, I would like to add uh, an, a personal experience like this where that generosity was extended to uh, us. And so when uh, my husband and I were traveling to uh, Punta Maria La Gorda, we went through an area where the char there's this charcoal burning, mm -hmm. and I stopped to take a photograph of um, this pile of uh, wood that was being turned into charcoal, and we were invited to come and share coffee uh, among the, the, the group of burners that were there. And these are peop people who had tiny little bits of coffee that they prepared in cracked cups and, and, and filled a cup with just a little bit for us to have. And they wanted to hear all about life in the United States and, and to tell us about their lives in Cuba. And um, over and over again, we had experiences like that of such amazing generosity and openness that it was uh, humbling. The other half of the question was, what can the United States offer Cuba? What kind of lessons can the United States offer Cuba? Um, and I think that maybe we've given them quite enough advice by now. <laughs> I, I just want to say very briefly that probably the most surprising thing um, for me was watching The Patriot, I think is the name of it, the Mel Gibson film of several years ago, um, in Cuba, in a Cuban theater, um, at Teatro Pairet, if anybody knows it, in Havana. And um, it, it, what it proved was that Americans and Cubans are extremely idealistic. Uh, we, we have tremendous commitment to idealism in this country, to ideals, and so do Cubans. And so I was watching this film, and people were like bawling their eyes out. <laughs> you know, I mean, all these emotional moments, and I'm sitting there going, oh my God, it's Mel Gibson, I'm in Havana, why am I watching this? <laughs> and you know, I was with all these Cuban relatives and everybody wanted to see the movie. So when the film is over and everybody's just like weeping, you know, they all get up and you keep hearing around the, around the theater, que película más cubana, you know? 
what in a tremendous Cuban movie. And, <laughs> and to me, it spoke to this, uh, this, you know, I mean, it is about the American Revolution, and, and you know, it, that's the first anti-imperialist um, war ever fought in the world. And we share, even though we deny it, we share that as a foundation, this idea that we fight empires, we become an empire. But, um, but moreover, I think that Cubans do have Lots in common, a lot in common with Americans, and we learn from each other very quickly as soon as we stop talking. Um, well, before, I, before, before we um, conclude, I just want to say when I heard that question, the first thing that popped in my mind was um, after Hurricane Katrina when um, the Cuban government um, offered to send doctors to mm. New Orleans and were turned down. And um, that is a lesson in uh, unfounded pride. And I think that all of us as Cubans and as Americans and as human beings need to really look inside for what is humanity. So thank you for being here.